We are continuing um, for the next few uh, weeks at the Bridge Church. We are finishing up the Gospel of Mark, in which we have been walking through Mark's account, arguably the earliest written account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, walking through that together as a church. And here we find ourselves today and the next couple, the next few Sundays, examining and looking at the final few hours and the final few days of Jesus' life. And what we are going to see today, what we are going to experience today, is central to everything that Christianity is built upon. All right, so you are in a good spot this morning. I am going to do my best. But today we are going to examine and to experience exactly what is central to the Christian understanding of how we live and we operate in the world. And so I know that some of you are here today. You're a friend of someone that invited you to come to the bridge. Perhaps you're a neighbor, you're a family member. Someone said, hey, you've got to come to the bridge. We're talking about Jesus. I want you to hear this. I want you to experience this. And so we're glad that you're here today. Today you get to experience and today you get to see uh, the culmination of everything that Jesus has been working on and how he lives and how he operates and how we follow him in this world, okay? So to catch you up to speed on the context, uh, Jesus has walked into the Garden of Gethsemane recently He is with a few followers as he is bearing the soul of being crushed in the final few hours of his life. And as he is in the garden, last week we saw he is betrayed by one of his closest followers. He's betrayed and then he is arrested. He's taken to the high priest in which they put him on trial. And standing before the high priest in the council of the Sanhedrin, they um, condemn him um, of things that he did not do and it's a false accusation and Jesus receives it and he stands there and here we find ourselves a few hours after that moment after Jesus has been beaten after he has been attacked after he has been betrayed and then we see the next scene in what happens in Jesus life this is what happens look with me at Mark 15 beginning in verse 1 it says this and as soon as it was morning the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council The chief priests, the elders, the scribes, this is the leaders of the religious movement. This is the leaders of the religious establishment. They have been trying to figure out for days how in the world they can get rid of Jesus. So they go and they arrest him. They go and arrest him and bring him before the high priest. And they condemn him to death in that moment, saying that he has to be executed for the wrongs that he has done, in which they can't come up with any wrongs that he has done. It's a false accusation. And they're here. They've beaten him at this point. The soldiers, the band of soldiers that work for the high priest and the religious establishment have begun to beat him as we saw last week. And in the wee hours of the the morning, we see them in their consultation with the whole council of the Sanhedrin. It says this, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. They bound Jesus. They put chains and shackles on him. They take him from the headquarters of the high priest and they walk him through town early in the morning with the band of soldiers and they bring him to Pilate. Now Pilate is the Roman prefect or the Roman governor over Judea. Caesar would have several uh, Roman governors that would exist and that would operate in various different regions around the empire. And over this region of Judea in which they find themselves in Jerusalem, a guy named Pilate is over this region and he is the Roman ruler, the Roman prefect of this this area. Um, Historians tell us that um, 
he operated and existed for about a decade from about 26 to 36 AD, right in the middle of what Jesus is going through in this situation. I would have hated to have been Pilate in this moment. Then we read verse 2. Pilate asked him. Pilate does his own trial over Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered him, you have said so. That's the only thing that Jesus responds to in this passage to Pilate's questions, the accusations and the sentencing in which they have given him, verse 3. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate asked him, asked, again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. This is incredible what is happening in this moment. Um, the chief priests and the elders, Pilate understands what's going on. He can read between the lines. The chief, chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they bring him before Pilate. The other gospel accounts tell us that they don't actually walk into Pilate's estate because they have to stay out so that, they're, uh, so that the blood isn't on their hands. They, they stay out. They submit Jesus over to Pilate and say, hey, Pilate, these are all the things that Jesus has done. He's done this. He's done this. He's done this. They give him a laundry list of things of why Jesus needs to be executed. And they give him over to Pilate. They want Pilate to do his, their dirty work. In, in their day in the first century, the religious establishment and the political establishment were essentially in bed together. Um, it, Caesar had the rule of power, but Judaism and these religious leaders would have had the rule of the people, specifically in Jerusalem. Pilate recognizes that in order to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, he has to do a little bit of a dance with the religious leaders. Because he, essentially, he ultimately wants the people, he wants the admiration of the people, and that's exactly what we see happening in this situation. And the chief priests and the elders, they, they bring Jesus to Pilate and they give him the laundry list of everything that they say he has done. And then Pilate examines him himself. Jesus, they say this about you. Jesus, they say this about you. They say this. They, and, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't respond to the false accusations. He doesn't respond to the sentencing. And it says that Pilate is amazed. Pilate's been doing this for quite a long time. Pilate's held this position for quite a few years, and Pilate experiences something he's never seen before. Pilate sees a man who's innocent, falsely condemned, but this innocent man, he knows he's innocent, Pilate knows he's innocent, he doesn't defend himself. He just receives it. He says that Pilate is absolutely amazed Jesus. He's amazed that he doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't understand what Jesus is doing. He doesn't understand why he would just be silent and to receive it. But for Jesus, Jesus knew that there was a greater story that was happening in this moment. Jesus knew that there was a greater narrative that was happening in this moment. Isaiah the prophet a few centuries later would have actually articulated exactly what was happening in this moment. Isaiah 53 verse 7. He, speaking of the Messiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is living out this prophecy. He's living out what was prophesied about him and not opening his mouth in this moment because he recognizes that there's a greater story that is happening here. See, Jesus is ultimately... He's leading a revolution, and they're crucifying him for this. But Jesus is leading a revolution that's different than any other religion, uh, any other revolution, rather, in the history of the world. 
And Jesus will gain power not by destroying his enemies, but actually by forgiving his enemies. And what Jesus is doing in this moment, in this scene, will forever lay the foundation for how Christians will live their lives. What Jesus is doing here and the way that he is operating will lay the foundation for you and me and for how Christians will live the rest of their lives. And this is entirely what Christianity is built upon this very moment. Jesus doesn't respond, though he is falsely condemned and accused. And this, we know, fundamentally changes early Christians, the ones who would follow Jesus at this after this moment for forever. We, we know from historians that the early followers of Jesus, for the few decades following this moment, that they would have a new pattern and a, a new peace for power as they went into society. Christianity absolutely exploded in the first couple centuries in the Roman Empire. Some historians say that upwards of 50% of the entire Roman Empire were followers of Jesus within the first couple centuries. It's amazing. It just completely changed the entire fabric of society. Rodney Stark, who is a sociologist and a historian, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, he studied why Christianity was so effective at changing the entire culture of the Roman Empire. There were huge changes that happened in the fabric of the culture in which uh, these early Christians found themselves. Rome and the Greco-Roman world was known in this day and age for female infanticide. Many newborn girls were just thrown out because the fathers considered young girls not as beneficial as young boys. We have accounts of where people in the first century would literally throw babies into trash heaps in the cities. We also know that this was a culture that was um, significantly plagued by sexism where women were treated as sub-society, as subcultural, uh, Women who were married were required to remain sexually pure and faithful to their husbands, but it was completely acceptable for husbands to have various mistresses and even women on the side. The poor in their day were, were treated horribly. If you were poor, you were of the lowest class in society. There was essentially no hope for you. There's no welfare system. There's no help. You were a drag on society, and so you would have just been kicked to the curb. And then we even have a, a letter from an emperor named Emperor Julian who is upset at Christians in the way that they were living. Uh, emperor Julian, he has a, a letter in which he wrote to a friend in which he was so ticked off that Christianity was growing and it was way more successful than his own religion and his own uh, culture. So he writes to a friend and he, he says this, it's crazy. He says, our religion is not prospering. The Christian religion is growing and growing. Christians do not just uh, care of their own poor. They take care of our pagan poor as well. Whereas it is obvious for everyone that our poor lack aid even from us. These early Christians, um, they transformed the fabric, the social fabric of society. These early Christians, would, um, they would give up their life in order to save another. They would rescue these newborn babies who were thrown into the streets they would empower women and treat them as equals with dignity and value and worth. They would take care of the poor regardless of who they were or where they came from. It was transformative. We even have records of uh, the plagues that wreaked havoc in the Roman Empire during about the time of A.D. 165. 
These plagues would go throughout the empire, would go into these uh, cities, and cities wouldn't be able to get rid of the diseases, and people would leave the city and flee the city. Upwards of a fourth to a third of the population in some cities would die because of the disease. Rodney Stark, he would write this in his book, Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of their neighbor. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And many died, for they were infected by their neighbors. But when they departed life, they did so serenely and cheerfully, accepting their pains. It's absolutely crazy. This early Christian community, it became unlike anything the world had ever seen. And inside the church, there were no separation of classes. There were no separation of cultures. There were no separation of colors. They, they not only took care of their own people, but they also took care of the Greeks and the Romans and the Africans and everyone else that would have been in that society. And they would bring them into their family, into their community. And in, this, in the church, you would have mixed socioeconomic classes, mixed educational levels, mixed ethnicities, and mixed everything. And Christianity blew off the doors of the Roman Empire. And people like Emperor Julian didn't know what to do with them. They couldn't figure them out. They couldn't be pegged into a certain box or put into a certain box. They couldn't be put into the conservative or moderate or progressive or liberal box. They didn't know what to think of them. They didn't fit into any of the cultural boxes that were given to them because they were unlike anything the world had ever seen. They didn't fit into the kingdoms of this world because they were really their own kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it all results from this moment. It all stems from this moment with Jesus. You see, Jesus, at his most needy moment, rather than elevate his own needs, he elevates the needs of others. Rather than prioritize his own comfort, he seeks the comfort of others. Rather than promote his own well-being, he seeks the well-being of others. And he started a revolution the world has never recovered from. He's changed the world. Now, I just wonder for us, Pilate is absolutely amazed by the way in which Jesus operates. I just wonder for us, is anyone in our culture amazed by the way that we operate? You know, is, do we make people scratch their heads? Do we not fit into the boxes? Do we, do we change the fabric of society by the way in which we live and the way in which we operate? I hope so. Um, I've got like 14 points that I want to give you right now based on this. I decided to give you six. Real quick. These each could be their own sermon, but I have to run through them quickly. Number one. Radical inclusivity. This is what was true of the early Christian community. This has to be true of us. People look at the bridge and they're like, what are all those people doing over there? Man, they let poor people in, rich people in, they all different colors of people in, educated, non-educated. Why in the world are all those people over? It just doesn't make, make sense. Why, why do they have such radical inclusivity over there? It should scratch people's heads. We shouldn't be like a Christian comfortable cul-de-sac down the street somewhere where everybody looks the same and dresses the same and acts the same and votes the same and talks the same and all those. I mean, that's not, that's not what we are supposed to be. We're supposed to make people scratch their heads. I don't know what's going on over there. 
And see, sometimes the church is a little bit late to the game. Culture's talking about inclusivity. Culture's talking about diversity. The church is supposed to be the tip of the spear of this. They're supposed to look at us and be like, oh, you see what they're doing? Wow, okay, we need to do what they're doing. Unfortunately, that's not always the case of the church. This early Christian community, they were radically inclusive in the way that they lived and the way that they operated. As well, radical service. These Christians had radical service to one another. I mean, they just, they just gave of themselves to each other. They, just, they would just look for a need. Is there, is there, is there a need? And how can, I, how can I serve? How can I meet that need? Radical service. Um, I, I walked in here this morning, and there was a group of volunteers that were in the lobby. They'd been here for a couple hours working on stuff and getting things ready. And I kind of looked at them in that moment, like, you people are crazy. Like, why are you showing up here early, a couple of hours early? When you got your weekend, you got a Sunday morning, you decided to be here. What's going on there? It's radical service. It's radical service. They see their role, they see their life as want to serve and give their time and their energy to, to others because they've been changed. It's com- something has completely changed them. Radical empowerment. The church is supposed to be the place where radical empowerment happens, where you walk in here and you might be at the bottom, but in here you're not at the bottom. We put you at the top. We empower you. We empower you. Uh, maybe that's because of your social class, because of your economic class, or because of your gender. You know, we want to be a place where we empower people to do what God has called them to do. We want to empower women. We want to give women uh, ministry and opportunity and dignity and get behind them. It's interesting to me. We're going to see this next week. But at every scene around Jesus in the final few days of his life, do you know who's always with him? It's the women. The women, they're the ones that are right beside him. They're the ones that are with him. They're the ones that are championing him at his most desperate moment. We've got to be a church that has radical empowerment. That's what, like Ethan, that's, that sounds political. I'm not being political. I'm being biblical. I'm being biblical. I'm like, this is what, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't give a rip what culture is doing outside of these four walls. I'm not responsible for what they do outside of these four walls. I'm responsible for what we do inside these four walls, the kind of people that we are. Which in scripture, you look, man, they just, they just empowered the heck out of everybody. Don't tweet that, all right? But they empowered everybody. They, radical community. Radical community. They were, like, they were like a tight-knit community. They were like a family of people. Church for them wasn't just an event that they showed up to on the weekend. But man, there was a community of people that were locking arms and that were caring for one another and loving one another and giving other time, like going shopping for one another and helping out when they've got their babies and all sorts of crazy stuff. They were like a radical community together. Radical mission. They are a radical mission. This is, this is crazy. People that were in the Greco-Roman world, whenever they heard the gospel, they'd never heard of Jesus before, but they heard about this guy named Jesus and what Jesus had done for them. It changed them from the inside out, and they decided they, they would leave their city and their town, and they would go tell other people in, in foreign places. It's crazy. It's radical, radical mission. You're now changed by something in which the way in which Jesus has changed you, and you just live on, on mission, which means everybody is a candidate for Jesus' love. Your neighbor that you can't stand is a candidate for Jesus' love. Your roommate that you just cannot take anymore is a candidate for Jesus' love. The person that works in the cubicle across from you is a candidate for Jesus' love. Every person that you come into contact with is a candidate for Jesus' love. And it's your responsibility, it's your mission to take the gospel to them. Radical mission. Radical generosity. Radical generosity. Uh, These people gave away everything that they had. We, We read in the beginning chapters of Acts chapter 2, that they sold their houses and their lands and gave the proceeds to the apostles so that they could distribute it to any who had need. 
I'm waiting for the person that walks in here one Sunday and say, hey, Pastor Ethan, we sold our house, and so we're going to give you the money so that you can use it to care for the, the church. That's crazy. Crazy people do that. Do you know that Christians are crazy? Everything about you is crazy. Like there isn't anything that is not crazy about you. Yet we, uh, we believe that a couple thousand years ago there was this guy who lived in Nazareth and he was a Galilean peasant, uh, but he said he was Jesus and he taught that he was Jesus and he, went, he died and then he, he rose from the dead and he's actually the son of God and he's the risen Lord and we follow him as our master and as our king. That's crazy. And, uh, and so we, we, we like sell stuff and give away stuff and we help people regardless of who they are and we just live that way for the rest of our life. And then one day Jesus, he's coming back on a white horse and taking us all to, to heaven. Stop trying to act like you're not crazy. <laughs> it's, cra- it's, it's crazy. It, it, it's a radical mission. It's radical generosity. It's, it, it's radical what Jesus is calling us to. It's radical that Jesus stands before Pilate when he is falsely accused and condemned and doesn't give a defense and a justification for himself. Pilate is amazed. He's amazed. Pilate isn't amazed very often. He's at the top of society. He's the leader, he's the ruler, he's the governor of the entire area. But this little homeless Galilean peasant, Jesus amazes him. That's the, our community of faith, our church, should amaze people. It should, it should amaze people in the way that we operate, in the way that we give, in the way that we relocate our lives for the sake of the mission of God. It's radical. What Jesus does here in this moment fundamentally changes the way that we operate and the way that Christians operate forever. And then it goes on in verse 6. It says this, Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among uh, the rebels, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a name called, uh, a man called uh, Barabbas. There's a custom that Pilate would have done at the week of Passover when it came to be time for the feast in which he would release for the people. Uh, Someone who was in prison would release for them. It was a custom, and the people asked, hey, we want you to release someone for us. And so uh, I believe that Pilate in this moment is trying to get Jesus off the hook. Though Pilate doesn't operate the way that he should operate, I think that Pilate is trying to figure out a way to get Jesus off the hook because he recognizes it's very clear that Jesus is innocent and isn't guilty of what they are condemning him of. Pilate looks to his prisoners, I mean, he looks to his soldiers and he says, hey, go get for me Barabbas. And I imagine the soldier would have been like, are you sure? Like that guy? He's the rebel. He's the insurrectionist. Do you, do, you remember who he, do you remember what he did? He actually murdered somebody. That's the reason why he is in. You want me to go get him? You want me to go get him and bring him out here? Are you, are you sure? I think Pilate was trying to figure out a person that he could put beside Jesus, and they would pick Jesus hands down easily. And he says, go get for me Barabbas. He was the worst criminal. He was the worst prisoner. And he got Barabbas, and he brought him out, and he would have stood on Pilate's portico, his porch, on his estate in front of the people, in front of the courtyard. And at this point, perhaps maybe a couple hundred people are gathered. And on one side of Pilate is Jesus, the innocent one. On the other side of Pilate is Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the rebel, the murderer. And he brings them 
They bring him Barabbas, verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did. And he answered for them, saying, Do you want me to release for you king of the Jews? He perceived it was out of envy that the chief, chief priest had delivered him up. He knew he wasn't guilty. Verse 11. But the chief priest stirred the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. The chief priest, the elders, the scribes, they're going around the crowd. Hey, we want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Have him deliver Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. We don't want Jesus. We don't want Jesus. We want... They're stirring up the crowd so that, they, that he will release for them Barabbas. Verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? Are you kidding me? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Jesus and Barabbas are standing side by side, and Pilate recognizes Jesus' innocence. Matthew would tell us that Pilate would even grab a basin of water and wash his hands so as to demonstrate that the blood was not on his hands, though it still was. And Pilate complies to satisfy the crowd. He's ultimately being controlled by the crowd rather than being controlled by his conscience. And he joins the lawless crowd by becoming lawless himself. And the crowd demands crucifixion. Crucifixion would have been the ultimate penalty. It would have been the ultimate punitive action for a criminal in their day. It would have been reserved for those who had committed the highest treason and insurrection against the state. And before crucifixion, they would prepare a way before someone would be hanging on the cross for hours, perhaps even days. And the way that they would prepare the victim is that they would scourge him. Scourge means to whip and to beat with a whip or to flog. And this was the normal preparation for Roman execution. A whip for scourging, would have been made of small pieces, would have had small pieces of metal or bone at the tips of the whip that would have been used. And such a device would have easily caused a disfigurement of some people who would have lost even limbs in part of scourging. And it would have caused serious trauma and often ripped entire pieces of flesh from the body or even losing an eye. In addition to causing severe pain, the victim would have often a state of hypovolemic shock due to the loss of blood. Often they were stripped naked and they were chained to a low pillar in which they would be bent over, in which two lictors or Roman soldiers would take turns and would alternate blows upon the person's body all the way up from their shoulders even down to the heels of their feet. In Roman culture, there was no limit for number of blows that would be inflicted, though in other cultures, sometimes it was 39 lashes. And historians like Josephus even report cases of flogging or scourging where victims would even die while bound to the post. They flog Jesus and they crucify, or they flog and they scourge Jesus in preparation for his crucifixion. It's amazing to me that Pilate he turns to the crowd and he basically says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? What do you want me to do with king of the Jews? Should I release him? Why or why not? What should I do with him? And the 
answer that they give to him is one word. They say crucify him, but what's happening is really one word. Their answer is substitution. What should I do with Jesus? The crowd knows that there is a guilty man in Barabbas. They know that there is an innocent man with Jesus. And Pilate asks the crowd, what should I do with him? But the crowd ignores the question, and they just say, crucify him. What has this man done? And they say, crucify him. It's a way of them saying, we know he's innocent, but we want him dead. It's substitution. Here's the innocent. Here's the guilty. Switch them. Substitute them. Put the innocent where the guilty should be. Put the guilty where the innocent should be. Take the innocent one and punish him. Take the punishable one and treat him as if he is innocent. And here's what Mark is trying to show us. Jesus' death wasn't just a death. It was a substitution. Jesus was taking our place. He was taking our guilt upon himself. He was taking our sin upon himself. He was taking our evil upon himself and being treated the way that we should have been treated. And he died that we might live. Here's the gospel in four words. Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake he made him, the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus is our substitute. Jesus, we think primarily often that Jesus is our example. That Jesus is our example in many ways he is. But Jesus, if Jesus is primarily your example and not your substitute, it will actually demoralize you in your process to be a Christian and your path to follow Jesus as a Christian. Examples are often hard to actually follow. Um, I think of this past week. NBA playoffs are on, if anybody is watching that. NBA playoffs are on. Um, there is a guy you may have heard of that plays for uh, the Cavs named uh, LeBron James. Uh, the guy is a beast. Um, he is a freak of nature. And Friday night, at the end of the game, they had a small lead. In the final few seconds, LeBron comes down the court back to back and in somebody's eye drains a three from the exact same place. I mean, the guy is an absolute stud. He's amazing. Now, if LeBron is primarily an example for you for how you should uh, play basketball, it will completely demoralize you. Like, but, but Ethan, I can be LeBron. No, you can't. You just cannot be, just stop trying. You, there will not be a day where you can, but even if I, if I wake up at 5 a.m. and I, if you wake up at 3 a.m., you will never be LeBron James. You don't have the ability. See, he, if he is your example for how you should be a basketball player, it just completely demoralizes you. It's in the same way, if Jesus is primarily your example for how you should live your life, primarily, it will demoralize you. See, Jesus isn't primarily, he isn't primarily our example, he is primarily our substitution. He's primarily our substitution. And this is the answer to the question for how you get the power to be agents of social change and cultural change in the same way that those early Christians were. The early Christians didn't primarily look to Jesus as an example. Because if you look at these early Christians, they didn't look to him primarily in that way and say, well, he died for others, he loved others, he gave up his power, gave up power for others, he forgave the enemies of these others. Let's just do that. That actually wouldn't be um, enough. If Jesus is just an example, he will crush you. 
He will make you feel bad. He won't actually empower you. But these early Christians saw Jesus as a substitute. There's a line that I left out intentionally from the quote earlier from Rodney Stark about these early Christians. I'll repeat it and then add the line at the end. He says this, Heedless of danger, Christians took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Jesus. And many departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbors, cheerfully accepted their pains. Then get this, many Christians in nursing and curing their neighbors, they transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. These Christians looked at their neighbors and said, if I take care of my neighbor, my, my neighbor might survive. My, my neighbor might live, but I might die because I might get infected. I might die that my neighbor might live. Oh, that's what Jesus did for me. That's what Jesus did for me, and they willingly did it. See, at the very center of Christianity, at the very center of the Christian understanding of salvation is not a man who rides off in power on a chariot over his foes. That's not what Jesus did. Rather, he actually lost power. He transferred our death to himself, our sickness to himself, our evil to himself. And so when these Christians said, the only way that I can help the poor to become rich is if I become poor. The only way that if I can help the sick to become well is if I become sick. The only way to help the dying to live is if I die. They said, okay, that's what Jesus did for me. Substitution. And they completely changed the world. And then the final verses of our passage say this in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. Some commentators say that this would have been upwards of several hundred people, several hundred soldiers that would have been a part of this battalion, that would have been Pilate's right arm for the military force that he had. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. Somebody grabbed a purple coat, perhaps a curtain in the palace. They grabbed it and said, somebody throw that on this crazy guy, Jesus Who's, who's, this, who's this idiot who thinks he's the king of the Jews? Who's this guy who keeps claiming that he's like this Messiah, this figure? Somebody, let's, let's, all right, let's make him a king. Somebody grab a purple, get the purple, let's put, because it's royalty, purples, for, put, it, put it on him. <laughs> this guy's a joke. Grab the purple cloak and they put it on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Somebody, hey, let's get him a crown. Somebody get him a crown. Yeah, yeah, okay. But let's, all right. You go to, over to the rose bushes and, and grab, some, uh, grab some of the bush and the branches and twist let's, and the thorns and let's get it. Let's actually make him a king. Who is this guy? Let's get, they grabbed the, made their own crown for him, thorns, and they put it on him and would have pressed it down onto his head. Look at this guy. Look at this guy who thinks he's a king. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews here, everybody. Hail, king of the Jews, look at him. And they were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him and kneeling down and homage to him, getting on their knees and bowing down before him, making fun of him. Son of God, the God of the, the, God of the universe being mocked. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. 
Jesus is mocked. Jesus ultimately takes on mockery for you. He takes on humiliation that was meant for you. You should have been mocked. You should have been humiliated. You should have been beaten. You should have been attacked. You should have been condemned. But Jesus took that for you. Ethan, how do we know that Jesus took that for us? There's a phrase that I have to point out in the name of Barabbas. Studying this past week, and I'm like, Barabbas is such a goofy name. It's such a bizarre name, Barabbas. Like, it's just just like, this is a dumb name. It just doesn't make sense. What, What does Barabbas mean? So I did some research, and I looked up what Barabbas means. Barabbas is actually two words that have been combined together. Bar means son, bar, and then Abbas comes from Abba, father, which means Barabbas, son of the father. Barabbas, in this moment, becomes the true son of the father. How does he do that? Because Jesus took his place. Jesus walks to the cross, Barabbas walks free. They would have come over to Barabbas. Pilate would have said, release him, let him go, he is free. They would have come over to Barabbas. They would have unchained his feet and his hands. I imagine what it would have been like for Barabbas. He probably didn't. We don't have any record that he gave thanks to Jesus. He just walked away free. He walks down off the steps and he goes back to his friends and his family and his home and he walks away completely free. But he's, he's, a, he's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. He is, he is a rebel. What is going on here? Why does God let this happen in this situation? Barabbas walks free and Jesus walks to the cross. It's either one or the other. Either Jesus walks free and Barabbas walks to the cross, or Jesus walks to the cross and Barabbas walks free. And guess what Jesus does in that moment? Jesus chooses to walk to the cross. Did you know that Jesus chose to walk to the cross for you? He chose to walk to the cross for you. See, the Father had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. You could say it this way. The Father had to treat Jesus like you so that he could treat you like Jesus. Today, Barabbas is typical. It's a type of you and me. Today, you are the insurrectionist. Today, you are the rebel. Today, you are the murderer. But you walk free. You walk free. The only thing that you can do is receive it. Barabbas didn't earn it. He didn't pay for it. He didn't ante up to be able to walk free. He just received it. He just received it. The only way that you become a Christian is by receiving it. You actually can't become a Christian until you get to the point where you stop trying to achieve it and you start just receiving it. He just received it. He received the freedom and he walks down free. I want you to see yourself today as Barabbas. Jesus walks to the cross. You walk away free. I want you to picture yourself today um, in Christ. God has taken the chains off that were meant for you. Chains of sin and shame. The shackles of condemnation. The shackles of comparison. The shackles of your past. The shackles of your problems. The shackle of your shames. And God has 
unleashed you and taken those off so that you could walk free. And, and you walk down the steps. Just walk down the steps. A free man, a free woman. I want to encourage you today. We have a tendency to put those shackles back on. We have a tendency to put those shackles back on. I, but, 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 Ethan, I, but Ethan, at the I am just a murderer. No, you're not. Jesus, Jesus took that for you. But Ethan, I, I am a sinner. Jesus took your sin for you. I am an insurrectionist. Jesus took your insurrection for you. But Ethan, I am a rebel. Jesus took your re- re- rebellion and became a rebel for you. You walk in freedom. You walk in, in freedom. And today, we, today we want you to walk in freedom today. We want you to walk in freedom. Jesus has delivered you from every sin, every shame, every past situation. He's changed you and he's empowered you to walk as a free man and a free woman today. Not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, but because he loved you. Because he said, I'll let you walk free. And you walked free. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you today for the good news of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. And God, I don't even understand it. I don't even understand how you could do this and how you could treat us this way and how you could love us this way. But God, I receive it today, and I pray that you would empower us and equip us to be a church that um, follows you, that walks in your freedom, and changes the world. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed today, um, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know how you come in here today. I don't know what you think about this gospel Jesus situation some of you today need to receive for the first time some of you have been striving some of you thought it was your morality some of you thought it was your own goodness that was actually making you acceptable for God the only thing that makes you acceptable for God is Jesus is Jesus and what he's done on the cross and you have to receive that scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord if you confess if you verbalize before God that God will save you change you change you into the person that you've never been before bring you into his own family that you today I want to encourage you to do that you can confess that today you can say something like God God today I confess that I am a sinner God today I confess that I need forgiveness and today I receive that forgiveness in Jesus I receive what he has done for me I receive the gospel and I give you my all I give you my all and ask you to change me and to make me new. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some of you prayed that right now. Can we put our hands together and celebrate the people that have...